grace isn't fair, but it's fair on the on the side that benefits us. Because Jesus' point was, doesn't doesn't the master have the right to be generous to whoever he wants to be generous to? Not to be stingy, but to be generous. And it is not fair. And and that's the hope we have. Because if this world ran by fairness, if this world by ran by karma, we'd all be in trouble. And it doesn't. And Christians are the ones who are commissioned to bring that unfair message of of grace so good that it has to be true. It's <laughs> so good that if it wasn't true, we'd all be in, in deep trouble. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick. This is Season 2, Episode 16. Philip Yancey is one of Christendom's best thinkers and writers. He's an award-winning journalist and best-selling author whose books have sold over 14 million copies around the globe. His work has been lauded by everyone from Billy Graham to U2's Bono. And no wonder, in light of Yancey's preoccupation with the universal themes of suffering and grace. A few of his books include What's So Amazing About Grace, The Jesus I Never Knew, Where Is God When It Hurts, and Disappointment with God. I first met Philip in 1994 when I interviewed him for the Mars Hill Review. He had just moved from urban Chicago with his wife Janet to the mountains of Colorado. Shortly thereafter, we began attending the same church, and over the years, Philip has become a friend and a significant encourager. So although it's been 23 years since that first interview, it was definitely worth the wait to sit down once again and record our conversation. So wherever you're listening, let's jump into part one of my two-part conversation with Philip Yancey. Philip, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking time today to be with me. It's my pleasure, Michael. I want to talk with you about the themes of your writing. Over several decades now, you've written and thought extensively about suffering pain and how that mixes with grace. And if we look at our country today, and if we look around the world, there is suffering and there is pain and there is a need for grace. So give me your thoughts on how what you've devoted your life to uh, impacts what we're seeing in the world today. Hmm. You're right. Those are the two themes that I keep circling around and coming back to. I agreed one time to give a lecture. I hate this. They always want to know what you're going to talk about 18 months from now. How how do I know what I'm going to be interested in 18 months from now? But I came up with a theme or with a topic that I thought, well, this is generic enough. I could talk about anything. So the topic I gave them was two themes that haunt me. And they seemed quite happy, and they printed brochures and did posters and all that. Well, then about uh, a few weeks before the event, which is when I start thinking about what to say, I said, man, i got to come up with two themes that haunt me, don't I? <laughs> and those were the two themes, suffering and grace. The first book I wrote was a book called Where Is God When It Hurts? And as you know, Michael, when you write a book, you get all sorts of responses. It gets you thinking, and you think, well, I should have said this. And what about this area? I didn't explore that. And so I've written a couple of other books since then on suffering. And then uh, What's So Amazing About Grace is probably my best-selling book, and I've done a couple of others with grace in the title. Those are universal themes, suffering because we live on a planet that does have suffering. And for some people, that's, that's intense. It's in your face. People with 
a child with a chronic illness or a relative with Alzheimer's or a, a baby born with uh, some sort of genetic issues, that defines their life. That's all they think about, and I hear from those kind of people. Grace, uh, I frankly uh, don't remember a time in my life when the need for grace is stronger in our country, the United States. There was a period of time there right after the Soviet Union fell, the Berlin Wall came down, when it looked like things were coming together, you know. Um, a historian wrote a book called The End of History, like, okay, now we all see things alike. That is so different now. We are living in a very confused time. On the one hand, people don't like anything that's binary. So, you know, male, female, death, life, they, they tear those things apart. They say, well, those are just uh, cultural constructions. Uh, Facebook, you can choose one of 60 gender categories now. The old one was male, female, death, life. You know, there are some binaries that we have to struggle with. But on the other hand, it seems like in the thought world and in the opinion and political world, it's so binary, it's never been more binary. You're... The, there are no bridge people. When I look back over politics in my life, I've seen uh, people from both sides of the aisle who have, who have minority views within their party, uh, Democrats who are pro-life, Republicans who are pro-same-sex marriage, you know, and, and it seems like there's almost no room for that anymore. There's a huge divide, and there's anger and shouting and street demonstrations and sometimes violence by people looking at the other side. And that's that's not a healthy political environment, and it's certainly not a place where grace thrives. And I, for one, believe that's what we're called to do. I found a, a motto, it became my motto in Hebrews, Hebrews twelve fifteen. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Mm. And I thought, I, that's something every Christian can do. I've been involved in Christian organizations, and often they come up with these sweeping mottos like, convert everybody in our generation. Well, that's not going to happen, you know? <laughs> uh, clean up the United States of America. That's not going to happen either. And in fact, I don't see either one of those in the gospel. Jesus and Paul both assumed there would be those who reject the message, and they did nothing about cleaning up the Roman Empire. And so why are we here? Well, I think that motto says it pretty well. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That is the great news, the news that we're loved, that although we deserve the opposite, we get forgiveness and we get redemption, we get God's love. And that's a, a message that we're supposed to be proclaiming from the rooftops. Instead, it seems more and more Christians are shouting in the streets rather than proclaiming good news from the rooftops. I love the phrase you used about bridge people. There's no bridge people. It's just uh, two sides of a of a chasm. Say more about bridge people because it, it seems like Christians ought to first and foremost be bridge people. It's just so strange that in my lifetime, Christians have embraced politics as the answer or the cause. I grew up in a Southern fundamentalist church, and we weren't involved in politics at all. In fact, politics was the – it was this scary, worldly 
miasma that uh, you want to avoid. And historians say, well, then uh, people like C. Everett Koop and Francis Schaeffer came along and the abortion issue became very important and that large-scale Christian consensus that had ruled in the United States broke apart. Well, not not only has it broken apart, it's become uh, a center of great controversy. I know this because whenever I write a blog or anything in social media that involves politics, I hear there are these trolls who just troll looking for anything Christian that they can just slam, you know. You're delusional. Jesus never existed. They go on and on. And they're really angry at Christians. And uh, I, I just think that's kind of strange because we're the message we have is not one that should immediately elicit anger. Politics is an adversary sport. And I think what's happened is conservative Christians, because of certain important issues, abortion, homosexuality being at the top, they're important issues. But we've become so identified with those issues, which were were not issues that Jesus and Paul talked about largely, <laughs> maybe at all, that uh, we have bought into that adversary you against me motif. And there are a few people, and I know some of them personally, who try to be bridges. So, for example, Jim Wallace, uh, I, I believe was hired or at least worked as a consultant to the Democratic Party during the Obama campaigns. I don't know if he was involved in Hillary Clinton. Jim Wallace of Sojourner's Magazine. Yes, right. Um, and he wrote several books about this that became New York Times bestsellers. And I think there were real contributions because most New York Times bestseller readers would not know that there are people who call themselves Christians who care about the poor, who care about education, who care about homelessness. Um, and Jim Wallace makes that very clear. Man, it's tough, though. The, uh, a lot of people are criticizing the Hillary Clinton campaign. She really, and her people, did very little, if anything, to reach out to an evangelical constituency. And it shows. Obama pulled in a lot more evangelical voters than Hillary Clinton. And uh, we just miss grace is not a binary thing. You don't get what you deserve. You get the opposite of what you deserve. And we live in a world of ungrace. The foreign relations run like that. You bomb my country, we bomb you back. The world lives by karma, basically. Um, a bank will loan you money for a motorcycle or a car or even a house, but stop making the payments and they'll come and take it over. They'll repossess it. That's the kind of world we live in. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Uh, nature runs that way. Everything runs that way. And usually religion runs that way. And then here Jesus came and he said, let me tell you some stories. And his stories all made the wrong person the hero, the unexpected person. So he told a story about a, a very good person who reaches out and helps somebody in need. It wasn't a Jewish rabbi. No, they passed by. It was a good Samaritan, the heretic, the enemy as they saw it in those days. He told a story about uh, a father who had two children. One was very obedient, respectable, and good citizen. The other one was a total prodigal. Well, we know, where, we know who's the hero of that story, the prodigal son. He told a story of uh, an employer who hires some people, and some of them start work early in the morning, say 7 o'clock in the morning, 
And then he passes later in the afternoon. Some people were just standing around. Don't you have a job? No. Well, I'll hire you. And they work one hour. And at payday, they get the same amount of money as the people who started at 7 o'clock in the morning. And they say, that's not fair. And, of course, that's the point. Grace isn't fair. But it's fair on the on the side that benefits us. Because Jesus' point was, doesn't doesn't the master have the right to be generous to whoever he wants to be generous to? Not to be stingy, but to be generous. And it is not fair. And and that's the hope we have. Because if this world ran by fairness, if this world by ran by karma, we'd all be in trouble. And it doesn't. And Christians are the ones who are commissioned to bring that unfair message of, of grace, so good that it has to be true, <laughs> so good that if it wasn't true, we'd all be in, in deep trouble. I like that phrase, so good it has to be true, mm-hmm. instead of too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Your writings talk a lot about, and we've had conversations about your growing up in a toxic religious environment in the South, where there were even people in or near your church that were part of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. How did that toxic environment form your thirst for grace and your preoccupation with it in your writings. Just the other day, I happened to come across the passage in Matthew 23, and it's it's reflected in Luke 11. It's when Jesus just takes the wraps off and goes after the the Pharisees. He just roasts them. You know, you den of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. You, he just goes after them. And if you read anything about biblical history, they were the they were the godly people of the day. They were the most biblically literate. They were the most devout, the ones you'd be least likely to catch in a sin. And uh, yet Jesus understood whitewashed tombs. You know, it, was, it looked nice on the outside, but inside it's, it's rotting corpses. As I look back on the church I grew up in, uh, certainly it bought into the world's ranking system in, in a lot of ways. So, for example, this was in the South in the 1950s, before the Civil Rights Movement. There were deacons standing at the door, ready to give cards to any person of color who tried to come in our church. You're not welcome here. One person eventually did come and was accepted and and did a good job. He tried to uh, apply for membership, and he was turned down. His name was Tony Evans. Wow, the Tony Evans. The Tony Evans of a megachurch in Dallas. And years later, they had a service of repentance where they asked him and other people like that who they had offended deeply. Uh, I I mean, think. uh, It's amazing that, well, for me, it's amazing that there are any African Americans who embrace the gospel after the way we good Christians treated them. But they have a lot to teach us, and that's that's the way the gospel works. You know, the people who are abusing it, other people sense the good news and— live by it or nourished by it. So we had that ranking system. Uh, we also, of course, had the the typical legalisms. Ours were more strict than just about anybody I know other than black bumper Mennonites or somebody like that. <laughs> and, but, you know, one day it dawned on me that by the standards of my church, you could be an excellent Christian in a coma because you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't go to bowling alleys, you don't do all these wow. things, you know. And I thought, hmm, if you can if you can succeed in your religion in a coma, there's something wrong with your religion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then, of course, I found out uh, that our ranking system, we were on that issue of racism. Of course, we were whitewashed tombs because 
uh, we would sing these songs, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. But as I said, we wouldn't even allow the red or yellow, black. We'd allow the whites, but none of the others in. And so um, I had a good dose of ungrace growing up. And I was a rebel, and I, I threw it all aside. I mean, I bought into it again and again. I probably went forward and accepted Jesus 35 times and was camper of the week one week and kicked out the next week. You know, it was that kind of schizophrenic type upbringing in a church environment. And then finally I just tossed it all off and said, if it's something I can just put on to win camper of the week and then take off like a, a suit of clothes the next day, there's there's no nothing, nothing here. And true to what I was taught, I assumed that if God did choose me, God would break me. You know, God's going to smash you. That's what mm. God does. God smashes you, breaks you, breaks your will, you willful person. That was the opposite of what actually happened. I, um, I credit three things to bring me, bringing me back to God. And it wasn't the Bible. And it wasn't preaching. It wasn't Billy Graham. I was fed up to hear with that stuff. It was um, the beauties of nature and classical music and romantic love, falling in love, which I didn't even believe in at the time. And those three things were God's way of wooing me and God's gentle way of saying, you know what? They have lied to you about what the world is like, and they have lied to you about what I am like. And I was loved, wooed in, into the arms of God, not not happily, re- resentfully, <laughs> but... Um, I often quote this this statement that G.K. Chesterton, I found in G.K. Chesterton, I think he borrowed it from somebody else, but he said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. Hmm. And that's the condition I found myself in. I was grateful. I, wanted, I was experiencing an, a work of art in the world, and I wanted to know the artist, and that brought me eventually back to God. Um, so I wasn't broken. I was graced <laughs> into the kingdom. And I had a history of suffering. Um, boy, my, my life so easily divides into two parts. Uh, I'm writing a memoir now, so I think about this a lot. You know, and the, the first part, it was like um, Old Testament ferocity. And I... I love the Old Testament. I read the Old Testament. I'm not saying it's we we don't have something to learn there. We do. But what I learned when I started reading the Old Testament is that God seemed to have a soft spot for rebels like me. Two-thirds of the Psalms, Eugene Peterson says, who translated them, are Psalms of lament, Psalms of complaint. God, you did a lousy job with this world. Jacob and Esau who does he choose? The cheater, the you know, the one, the one who always finds a way. Um, all the way through, God tends to go with the rebel, and uh, I realized that the church was wrong about that too. God doesn't go around looking for people to squash. God goes around looking for people to love, and I, uh, thanks be to God, was one of those people, and so grace is at the core of my understanding of of what what God is and, and why the world was made in the first place. You talked about the suffering that you've experienced in your life. You lost your father when you were a year old. How right. did that shape you? And did that to 
did that in any way influence how you see God as a father? I don't really understand now how to see God as a father. I had some father figures over time, but I didn't have that intimate, close, personal relationship. It, it was just a word that I started using about God that had no meaning to it. Now, I know, and I, I know you know women particularly who've been abused and just can't even say the word father when they're praying. I didn't have anything like that, a block. I just, in fact, in a, in a certain way, father and God uh, were the same for me because I didn't have a human father kind of interpreting that word for me. However, the image of God that I got from my church was the angry, scowling policeman in the sky, you know, looking to squash people who are having a good time. And um, the suffering theme, we mentioned the suffering theme. You're right. My father died when I was a year old, and I didn't know this for many years, in fact, until I was an adult. The reason he died, he had polio, was in an iron lung, couldn't move anything except his head just a little tiny bit. Couldn't even breathe for himself. If they unplugged that machine, he would die. But he was a young man. He was only 23, I think. Uh, had two children. Was planning to be a missionary in Africa and had a, he was a vibrant person. Had a lot of stories of people that he brought to to God through his testimony. And he had um, as many as 5,000 people on his mailing list back wow. when there were mailing lists, <laughs> not email lists, real mailing lists, who prayed for him, who were probably going to support him and uh, our family as missionaries. And uh, at a certain point, for a variety of reasons, they decided to remove him from the iron lung, knowing some of the risks. He was not in a good hospital. It's not – he. He participated in the decision, but I later found out that, it, that part of it was a faith healing decision. People th thought God co surely couldn't take, in quotation marks, couldn't take somebody like this, a young person with so much potential as a missionary. And so he has moved from, from uh, an iron lung, the only place in Atlanta that had iron lungs, to a chiropractic hospital and uh, only lived a couple of more weeks after that. And uh, that came out, again, I didn't know that until I was a late teenager or even, I guess I was 21 when I found that out, just found a newspaper clipping the story that here was this secret to my family that, in a sense, defined our family, but I never knew. Wow. And uh, what I learned from that is that w what you believe about theology matters truly matters. And the same applies to grace. If you believe God is this person rather than that person, boy, that, that's going to affect the way you, you understand anything in the Bible. And I think it's so important for me, it was so important for me to get to know Jesus. I wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, which pretty well says <laughs> this is my pilgrimage. And in Hebrews, it tells us that he's the express image of the invisible God. So that if you want to know what God is like, if you ever have a question, what would God do? What does God think about this? Go to Jesus. And that's been so important to me in, in the issue of suffering because if you go to Jesus, he's with a lot of suffering people. Not one time does he ever say, well, it's your fault, you did something wrong, or any of the little 
answers that Pharisees were giving in his day, the disciples believed, and Job's friends believed, and many Christians today believe. Not Jesus. No way. He would refute those quasi-explanations and instead respond with comfort and healing. And what Hebrews tells us is that's what God is like. <laughs> and there are a lot of questions on suffering I don't know the answer to, but but one I do know the answer to, and that is, how does God feel about uh, this family that just lost their son or this family whose child was born with a defect, a genetic anomaly that will affect the family the rest of their lives? I know how God feels because I, I look at Jesus and I see how he responded to people in similar circumstances. And, of course, if you get that wrong, if you think God is the one up in the sky sticking pins in people. Oh, they're having too good a time. I'll get them. Zap. I'll give their three-year-old leukemia. That'll teach them. Ha ha. You know, people have that image of God, and it's so destructive. How can you ever hear the good news when you believe that's true? And um, it worked out. It worked its way out in my own family in, in some difficult ways. Certainly, it, it made tremendous hardship for my mother's life and um, eventually fractured the family so that uh, my brother, who was three years old when my father died, has really had no contact with, with anybody in the family except me for 47 years. He's, he's out there alone, rejecting God. One of my books, Disappointment with God, I, I, I dedicated to him, to my brother, who's still disappointed, and he still is. And a lot of that is because He's disappointed by the lies the church told him. <laughs> I saw a movie one time called Lies My Father Told Me. And I thought, oh, I'll write a book called Lies My Church Told Me. My publisher said, no, I don't think we're ready for that yet. <laughs> <laughs> but in many ways, your writings have, have woven your, your wrestling with those lies uh, throughout your writings, though not maybe naming them explicitly. That's true. That's true. And... I made a list of my books. Somebody wanted um, dates for copyrights and things like that. And I made a list of them and went back. And if you can tell my own pilgrimage just by the titles. The first book is Where Is God When It Hurts? Second book is Disappointment with God. And then I had this, we mentioned father figure, I had this gift from God, truly a gift from God, um, a giant of a man who was so instrumental. My own faith was really borderline, out on the edge there, not sure. And... Because of what I'd written about pain, I got involved with Dr. Paul Brand, and we wrote three books together. So that's 10 years of my life, 10 formative years when I could not have written my own about my own faith uh, in, a, in a very transparent way. But I could write with complete confidence about his faith, and in a sense, in the process of doing that, I took on his faith, <laughs> his understanding of faith. And, and, and just for our listeners, yes. I want to do a call out. One of those books you wrote with him is The Gift Nobody Wants, right? Uh, right. which is uh, formerly entitled Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. And that's a, that's a brilliant book at looking at what would happen if we didn't have pain. Yes, yes. He was the one. Actually, they, they may have retitled it since then. I think it's called The Gift of Pain now. So if you went on Amazon, that's what you would look for. And Dr. Bram was the one who who conclusively proved that one of the most feared diseases in the world in history, leprosy, 
was, oh my goodness, 99% of the disfigurement and the abuse that happens from that disease happens because people with leprosy don't feel pain. All the bacillus does is attack nerve cells, and everything else is a secondary effect, so that you lose fingers. You lo- I've, I've met people who, who have lost all of their toes because they insist on wearing shoes that are a little too tight. Hmm. If I, my shoes are too tight, I take them off and put some old slippers on, you know, but they don't feel it. So they leave those shoes on, and eventually a, a wound starts, and then an ulcer, and then the bone degenerates, and they, they lose their toes. I've, I've seen this again and again. And um, so there, there is an. He was the only person I ran into who truly was an advocate for pain. He would say, "If I had one gift to give my leprosy patients, it would be the gift of pain." That's where that phrase came from. But far more than that, uh, Dr. Brand became for me uh, a beautiful model of what a Christian could be. I'm sure you've heard the phrase from Irenaeus, the church father, who said, "The glory of God is a person fully alive." Remember what I said earlier about uh, the people I grew up in, you could be a good Christian in a coma. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a a contrast. And here I saw this man who was uh, uh, educated and erudite and brilliant and raised a family and um, cultured and was in every – a brilliant scientist in every way was made better because of his faith, not – it made him larger. It didn't shrink him. And – if you look at his life, you think, oh, my, he could have – he was offered head of orthopedics at Harvard and at Stanford and turned them down to work with leprosy patients in India. Oh, my goodness. And yet I, I know of no one who became more fulfilled in, in a life of more gratitude. It convinced me, as many other interviews I did as a journalist, it convinced me that uh, Jesus was spot on in the comment he made that's repeated – different ways more than six times or six times in the Gospels. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, you don't gain your life by acquiring more and more. You gain your life by giving it away. And in the very process of giving it, you gain it. <laughs> and I've seen this so so often with the people I've interviewed, the people who, who we think we envy because they're so famous, they're celebrities, you know, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, women. <laughs> But when I get to know people like that, not those two particularly, but people like that that I've interviewed, I don't really envy them. I find them to be pretty confused, pretty tortured individuals, which is one reason they're driven toward the success that they get. And then it's people like Dr. Brand. And I've seen so many as a journalist in different parts of the world, just these faithful, gentle followers of Jesus who are manning clinics, who are teaching, who are digging wells. And I, what saddens me, earlier we were talking about politics, and if you, ask the, if you ask the general public, what is a Christian, especially what is an evangelical Christian, they'll talk about these uptight, hypocritical, judgmental, morally superior. And I, I want to say, let me show you what an evangelical Christian is. Here, go with me. Here's this woman in the Philippines who— read in the Gospels that we should take care of widows and orphans, and she's now invited 32 street children into her home. She, she cooks for them. She started a school for them. That's an evangelical Christian. Let me, let me tell you what I did two weeks ago. I went to the Denver Women's Prison, and these volunteers who have gone in there every day for four years to teach them seminary courses to help them 
build their their skills for the outside world. We had a little graduation ceremony. That's what an evangelical Christian is. And I could tell, and I do, that's my job, tell stories like that. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the attitude of ungrace, the kind of Pharisee attitude that Jesus blasted so strongly, gets in the way so that people never see those those kind of people. And I am proud of the word evangelical, even though to a lot of people, a lot of people, I, friends of mine who may be orthodox in their theology would not use that word because it's become so stained, so politicized. It means good news. I'm going to keep it as long as I can. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. 